This week we are in Revelation 19 and we're going to cover the same verses because I never got to finish last week and I thought I'll just spend the time today finishing off Christ and his bride. So I just pray, thank you Father for the confidence that we have in the fact that the bride price has been paid, Lord, our sin debt has been paid, and the contract has been made when you share the cup with the disciples. And Lord, you're waiting in heaven just for that day when you come and get us, and we will drink that cup with you in heaven, and you're waiting for that day, you're longing for that day. And you said with great anticipation, I have been looking forward to this. Lord, this is something that's really important to you. I pray it will be something that's really important to us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So last week we went through several scriptures and saw that there's many references that parallel the church's relationship or marriage to Jesus with the Jewish marriage customs. And there's still a couple of scriptures we didn't get to look at last time, so we'll look at them this week. So we just read Revelation 19, 1-9 to get the context. So that says, After these things I heard a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven, saying, Alleluia! Salvation and glory and honour and power belong to the Lord our God. For true and righteous are his judgments, because he has judged the great harlot who corrupted the earth with her fornication, and he has avenged on her the blood of his servants shed by her. So that's the judgment of the Mystery Babylon religious system. That's Revelation chapter 17. Again they said, Alleluia! Her smoke rises up forever and ever. That was referring to the judgment of the commercial Babylon system located in Rome in the tribulation period, the kingdom of the Antichrist. Verse 4, And the twenty-four elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshipped God who sat on the throne, saying, Amen, hallelujah. Then a voice came from the throne, saying, Praise our God, all you his servants and those who fear him, both small and great. And then verse 6, And I heard, as it were, the voice of a great multitude, as a sound of many waters and as a sound of mighty thunderings, saying, Alleluia, for the Lord God omnipotent reigns. So this is going to be one awesome Praise and worship, service in heaven. There's a crescendo, there's a climax, there's a peak of the worship, and it all comes to being because of the marriage of the Lamb. Let us be glad and rejoice and give him glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his wife has made herself ready. And to her it was granted to be arrayed in fine linen, clean and bright, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. Then he said to me, Right, blessed are those who are called to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These are the true sayings of God. So we have the marriage of the Lamb and the marriage supper of the Lamb. The marriage is the drinking of the wine together, and then the bride goes into seclusion for seven days, and then they come out and have the big party, the big supper. That's the custom. So I'm just going to go through the four stages of the Jewish marriage to remind us. So the first stage, the father of the groom makes arrangements for the bride and pays a bride price. And the parallel with the church is that the shed blood of Christ was a bride payment and the cup at Passover was a marriage contract. The second stage, the fetching of the bride, that's the rapture, at the time decided by the father. The third stage, that's a marriage ceremony where only a few are invited and the bride is then hidden away in heaven face to face with Christ and that follows the beam of seat judgment and the fourth stage the marriage supper or feast where everyone is invited and this is effectively the celebration that begins the thousand year reign of Christ on earth so I just go through those in a bit more detail so the first stage can be any period of time and during this time do you remember what happens The bride prepares her dowry and the groom prepares a place for them to live. So we, the bride, the church, have been given gifts, talents, time and resources to use for his glory. It's also a time 
for us to be gradually changed into his image. That's sanctification. How much we do for God's glory, motivated by love for God, becomes our reward, which is also our dowry, which we will give back to Christ. And we'll come back to this later. Now, at the same time, Christ is the groom and he is preparing a place for us in heaven, just like the Jewish groom would in Israel. So the second stage of the Jewish wedding or Jewish marriage is that at a time under the Father's authority and I would say quite soon given the current events, the convergence of end times prophecies, Christ will return to fetch us or rapture us and take us back to where he is in heaven. He's just waiting for the Father to give him the command. So. Just as the bride met the groom in the streets, so we will meet Jesus in the air at the sound of the trumpet of God. In the twinkling of an eye, we will receive our glorified or resurrection bodies and we will never be separated from Jesus forever. Whether it's in heaven or on earth, we will be with him. The third stage, as we saw after the Bema Seat Judgment, the judgment of rewards, we are granted to be arrayed in fine linen, clean and bright, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. So here we enjoy the rewards of our faithfulness to Christ while here on earth and we enjoy those rewards for eternity. Now, it's not, wow, look at me. (laughs) I'm boasting about all the good things that I did. No. It's a reflection of our love for the Lord. It will result in a greater glory and a greater responsibility given to us in a glorified state. So those who are truly serving the Lord would not be thinking, wow, those who are serving the Lord would be going, I can't believe it, I actually got rewarded for doing stuff that God did for me. (laughs) Wow, this is a privilege. And then, the fourth stage, the marriage supper or feast of the Lamb. The question is, why does John write, blessed are those who are called to the marriage supper of the Lamb? Well, if you're a part of the marriage supper of the Lamb, You are in the thousand-year rule and reign of Jesus Christ. You have survived the sheep and goat judgment, that's the Gentile judgment, and the Israelite judgment, where anyone who's a native Israelite will be judged as well, whether saved or not saved, believer or non-believer. All the unbelievers, Jew or Gentile, will go to Hades, and the people who are left will go into the millennial reign. So that's the opposite to the rapture. In the rapture, the, the believers are snatched up from the earth and the non-believers are left behind. In the case of the sheep and goat judgment and the Israelite judgment, the non-believers are taken and the believers remain. So it happens and this is a celebration and feast everyone is invited to. It's like the introduction to the millennial reign. And we saw the scriptures that support that last week. So, as we know, in the Middle East, once someone is engaged or betrothed, they wear a veil. And that signifies that she is taken, so to speak. No one else can have her. She has been bought. She has been given to someone else. She's purchased. So are we. We need to be faithful to Christ because we've been purchased by Christ. We're not available to anyone else, not to this world, not to anyone or anything else. So what does the veil signify to the bride? Well, thinking about it, if you were the bride, what would you be thinking? You'd be waiting, longing, greatly anticipating to be in the face-to-face presence of your groom. This is your future and your hope. She's not looking around for other suitors you know, other potential husbands. She already has a husband and she's waiting for him. Her husband was all she would be living for. Everything she does now is to prepare for her coming consummation of this marriage. All she wants was the father of the groom to hurry up and say, go, go get your bride. And the same is true for the Christian. Now, I'm going to 
go to First John chapter three verses two and three, and this whole thing about us looking forward to when we see Jesus face to face. So First John chapter three verses two and three. I'm going to read from two different translations. So beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not yet been revealed what we shall be. But we know that when he, Jesus, is revealed, we shall be like him, like Jesus. For we shall see him, Jesus, as he is. And everyone who has his hope in him purifies himself, just as he, Jesus, is pure. And from the New Living Translation it says, Dear friends, we are already God's children. But he has not yet shown us what we will be like when Christ appears. But we do know that we will be like him, for we will see him as he really is. And all who have this eager expectation will keep themselves pure, just as he is pure. So it says there, but he has not yet shown us what we will be like when Christ appears. I want to talk today about that. Because we have something really, really good to look forward to. This is an incredible thing that John, and I'm going to look in some verses that Paul wrote too, in Corinthians. This is our expectation. This is what keeps us pure. So we only have to understand why. That's what I want to focus on today. Now, what does it mean to be revealed? Well, either I die and go to be with the Lord, or... The rapture happens and we all go up. Either way, we're in his direct presence. Now the two main points. In this life, we will never have a perfect understanding of Christ. We will never see him as he sees us until we go to be with him. Like it says, when he is revealed, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. So, it's important that we understand that our understanding of Christ is limited. And that brings a bit of humility to us because it shows that we don't and cannot fully understand everything about God. And as far as our sanctification goes, I mean, who here has finished their sanctification process and sees and hears and loves Jesus perfectly? <laughs> no one on this earth. But when we die, it's finished. When Jesus comes to get us, it will be complete. So the point here is that we will always be limited in our capacity to enjoy relationship with Jesus so long as we are living in our mortal body with our sinful nature still attached to us. And this is what makes us long to be with Jesus because we get a taste, but the real thing is yet to come. Now, this also reminds us of the sanctification process that we talked about last week. It says that when he is revealed, we shall be like him. Again, this is difficult to imagine what this is going to be like. Our sin nature completely gone, the sanctification process completed. We can't even imagine what we will be like in glory. Romans 8.23, it says, we believers are groaning, longing for our bodies to be released from sin and suffering. We've never lived without sin and suffering. What will it be like to live without sin and suffering? To have our perfect body, a perfect spirit, a perfect soul. So both of these things point to a hindered or incomplete relationship with Christ. But an unhindered or complete relationship with Christ in eternity. Or for eternity. So this is the focus of eternity, what we are looking forward to the most. And I like the way the NLT says it, the New Living Translation. It says in verse 3, And all who have this eager expectation will keep themselves pure, just as he is pure. So I think of it this way. Our greatest joy in heaven won't be catching up with family and friends who have gone on before, you know, our loved ones who were believers, are believers. It won't be the streets of gold. It won't be the angels singing and flying around. Rather, our gaze will be fixed on Christ as we experience the unhindered, unrestricted presence of the Lord. We will finally experience complete satisfaction and contentment 
perfect love, perfect fellowship. So why is seeing, this is an application here, why is seeing Christ as he is a motive to keep ourselves pure? The way I understand it is like this. Basically, the more sin in my life means the less I will be able to comprehend, understand, and therefore experience God's love. And I've heard an analogy before. It's not mine. I'm stealing it. Sin is like clouds that come between you and the sun. Okay? So just like the clouds block out the sunlight, so our sin blocks our vision of Jesus, the sun, S-O-N. So the more I choose to love and obey Christ, the greater my capacity to comprehend, understand, and therefore experience God's love. The clearer my vision of the sun will be. In effect, there'll be less clouds between me and the sun. Okay, And the opposite is true. If I choose to sin, then what will happen is my sin will become like those thick clouds and will block out the sun and my life becomes cold, my heart becomes cold, weary and dreary. So there's a reason for this exaltation here where it says, and all who have this eager expectation will keep themselves pure just as he is pure. It says it in Romans 8.29 in a different way. For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. So what's God's plan for us? What's God's goal for us is to become like Jesus. What is these verses saying in First John? We will become like him. We will be as he is. Okay, This is our future. This is our destiny. And I love it. I got a quote from David Guzik. The Christian should long to be like Jesus. Yet remember that God will never force a person to be like Jesus if he doesn't want to. And that is what hell is for, people who don't want to be like Jesus. The sobering, eternal truth is this. God gives man what he really wants. If you really want to be like Jesus, it will show in your life now, and it will be a fact in eternity. If you don't really want to be like Jesus, it will also show in your life now, and it will also be a fact in eternity. So that's just speaking of our free will. We have a choice to follow or not. But even if we are a Christian, we can still, and we'll come back to this in a minute, we can still choose the degree of our faithfulness, the degree that we will follow him. Now we come to some of my favorite verses in the New Testament, and that's 1 Corinthians 13, 8 to 13, and it's all about love, and it's all about us seeing him face to face. So. What I look forward to is seeing my Saviour face to face. So I'm going to read 1 Corinthians 13, 8 to 13, and it talks about our ultimate goal being perfect fellowship with Christ. So, 1 Corinthians 13, 8 to 13, Love never fails, but where there are prophecies, they will fail. Where there are tongues, they will cease. Where there is knowledge, it will vanish away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when that which is perfect and perfect means complete, mature, full-grown, adult, initiated, without spot, fully developed, genuine, and entire. So, But when that which is perfect has come, then that which is in part will be done away. When I was a child, I spoke as a child, I understood as a child, I thought as a child, but when I became a man, I put away childish things. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know, just as I also am known. And now abide faith, hope, and love, these three. But the greatest of these is love. So we need to come back to get the main context, because I'm going to apply this, but we need to understand what the main point is that Paul is making. The context of these verses is Paul addressing the overemphasis of the Corinthian Christians that they had on the gifts of the Holy Spirit. And his main point is that the gifts are temporary, but a love relationship with God is eternal. 
and thus the need to have the right emphasis and the right priorities. And Paul uses three different analogies to reinforce the same point. So, in this life, our knowledge of God is not complete. That's verses 9, 10, and 12. We know in part. In verse 11, it says that we are not growing up yet. And in verse 12, it says that we do not see clearly. We're seeing through a mirror dimly. So, sometimes we forget that. We think we're seeing things clearly, but we need to remember we're not. However, in contrast, when we are finally in the direct presence of the Lord, then we will have complete knowledge of Him. Verses 9, 10, and 12. We will have grown up to be a man. Verse 11. And we will see God face to face. Verse 12. So just to go through those things, the whole thing about knowing in part. So in verses 9 and 10 and 12, Paul clearly points out that our knowledge of God is not complete while we are not in the direct physical presence of God. So in contrast, like we read in 1 John 3, 2 and 3, when we are in his presence, we shall know him as we are known, as he knows us. So Christ now has perfect knowledge of us. He knows everything about us, the hairs of our head, the thoughts, everything, right? Think about that. The words we're going to speak, he knows it. And it says that we're going to know him as he knows us. And that's just astounding to me. We're going to know him that intimately. This is what physical intimacy in the marriage is a picture of in the spiritual. It's this knowing him, knowing his heart, knowing his thinking, knowing what he's really like, being that close to his heart. And then in verse 11, the second analogy here, Paul's using the idea of growing up from being a child to being a man and the gifts uh, compared to childish things. So it's a comparative thing, right? So in contrast, when we are in the direct presence of God, we will not need the gifts, the childish things as he calls them, to help us draw near to God. We won't need them. Therefore, they won't exist. And then in verse 12, Paul uses the analogy of a bronze mirror. And in Corinth, they were good at making bronze mirrors, but still, it was still a blurry and dim reflection at best to describe our relationship with God here on earth while we are separated from the direct presence of God. So that's the analogy. A dim reflection to describe our separation. We can't see him clearly. Now, in contrast, when we are in heaven, we will see him face to face with our glorified bodies, so we'll be able to stand in the direct presence of God. And that is something that is impossible while we are in our mortal sinful bodies. So. That's the reason why we can't see God and live is because we are sinful, right? But then, in a new body, there's nothing stopping us. Now, I just want to emphasize that this is one whole, one point, but it's made in three different ways. And so verse 12 says, For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know just as I also am known. So notice how Paul repeats the words now and then. And this clearly indicates that now I know in part is analogous, or it means the same, or it's linked to, for now we see in a mirror dimly. And conversely, but then I shall know just as I also am known is analogous to, but then face to face. So obviously face-to-face is in heaven, right? So we won't know as we are known until we are with Christ in heaven. Now, talking about face-to-face, I've got a quote from David Guzik who explains it well. Because there's a difference between Moses talking to God face-to-face and us talking to God face-to-face in the New Testament once we're in God's physical presence. So this is what he says. In a passage like Numbers 12.8, where the Lord says of Moses, I speak with him face to face, the phrase, 
face to face is a figure of speech, telling of great and unhindered intimacy. Moses' face was not literally beholding the literal face of God, but he did enjoy direct intimate conversation with the Lord. But the face to face Paul speaks of here is the real face to face. We will be literally looking God in the face. Okay, We will have the ability to be in his presence. We will be completely pure. So, the knowing part must refer to our knowledge of God. At the moment, we don't have it. We have a partial knowledge of God. While alive in this mortal body, we can only have at best a limited or partial knowledge or understanding of God. And that's due to three reasons. Our intellectual limitations, our emotional limitations, and our physical limitations. So the application here, in three different ways, Paul has said the same thing. The best is yet to come. And when it does come, we will be so intimate with the Lord that the gifts will become unnecessary. We won't need tongues to help us praise God. We don't need any help to praise God when we're in heaven. We won't need prophecy to warn, encourage, and exhort us in our relationship with God. We won't need knowledge to show us the right way or to reveal things to us. We will already know it. The scripture says in Jeremiah that we will no longer be teaching each other. We don't need it. We already know. We'll have that knowledge already in our heart. So, why am I talking about this? Because... This is a wonderful illustration of how we will be so intimately connected to Christ that there will be no barriers. I'm trying to give us all some understanding of what it would be like to finally know Christ the same way he knows us. And it's just like the wedding where the veil is lifted and the bride sees the groom for the first time. As we look into his eyes for the first time, there will be perfect understanding perfect knowledge, perfect love, and perfect fellowship. Finally, we will have perfect knowledge of him, knowing Christ as he knows us. And for me, that's totally amazing. It's just something you got to sit down and think about, meditate on this. What is really involved? What's going to happen? It's beyond our comprehension. So this is what life is all about, looking forward to that moment when Christ is revealed to us. So it's a glorious day. Now, our limitations, I was just thinking about this. So I thought I'd share it. It's just my thoughts. Our physical body, our sinful nature. Right now, it's a battle even to choose to follow the Lord because of our sinful nature. But then, in our sinless, glorified or resurrection body, there will be no struggle. We will be perfect in thought, word and deed. And that will be a natural thing. And in fact, not only will we not have the desire to sin, but we won't even have the ability or capacity to sin. Now we sin because we are sinners, right? We are born sinners. But then we will have been completely transformed into the image of God. We will be perfect. Now, intellectually, now I know our brains are an amazing piece of equipment that God has designed. There's nothing like it. We still really don't understand how they work. But even with this amazing brain, we only have the tiniest capacity to understand who God is. But when we get our resurrection body, we're going to have such a huge capacity. You know, remember those Commodore 64 computers from a long time ago? Those you know cassette tapes that you put in there? Oh boy. And you compare that to a, you know, a supercomputer of today's age, which is, you know, building spaceships and all that kind of stuff. It's like there's no comparison. All right. Our ability to intellectually understand who God is is just going to be incredible. Emotionally, in our earthly mind and bodies, we are incredibly limited in our capacity to experience and express peace, love, and joy. Our earthly mind is so easily overwhelmed just by a whisper of God's love. So our glorified or resurrection body will have an almost infinite ability, I believe, to both experience and express emotion, to express love. So what we think is awesome here will be tiny in heaven. 
it'd be nothing compared to the heights of love that we would be able to experience and feel once we are in the presence of Jesus in our glorified bodies. Just trying to help you see that there's a lot to look forward to. I've got a couple of quotes from Spurgeon. We couldn't handle this greater knowledge on this side of eternity. If we knew more of our own sinfulness, we might be driven to despair. If we knew more of God's glory, we might die of terror. If we had more understanding, unless we had equivalent capacity to employ it, we might be filled with conceit and tormented with ambition. But up there we shall have our minds and our systems strengthened to receive more, without the damage that would come to us here from overleaping the boundaries of order, supremely appointed and divinely regulated. Another quote from Spurgeon on this passage overall, The streets of God will have small attraction to us. The harps of angels will but slightly enchant us, compared with the king in the midst of the throne. He it is who shall rivet our gaze, absorb our thoughts, enchain our affection, and move all our sacred passions to the highest pitch of celestial ardour. We shall see Jesus. I love the way he preaches. He's amazing. It is he who shall rivet our gaze, absorb our thoughts, enchain our affection, and move all our sacred passions to the highest pitch of celestial ardour. <laughs> so remember how verse 13 finishes in First Corinthians 13 here? But the greatest of these is love. So an application here is, another way of determining whether I should or shouldn't do something is not only to ask, is it right or wrong, but is this going to cause my love for God to grow or to wane? Is it going to cause me to move closer to him or move further away from him? Because remember, not everything we do is a right or wrong thing, but everything we do does affect our relationship with God. And going back to our previous analogy, the clouds in the sky. Okay, Will the sky become more cloudy or less cloudy? Will my vision of the sun, S-O-N, become clearer or more dim? More obstructed. Now, going to move on to the parable of the talents because I want to go back to the idea of the dowry. And I wanted to do this last week, so we'll do it this week. So before we read the passage, just want to give a bit of background. The dowry is what we bring to Christ. It's the fruit of the gifts that God has given us. So I'm just going to read from Revelation 19, 7-8. It says, Let us be glad and rejoice and give him glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his wife has made herself ready. And to her it was granted to be arrayed in fine linen, clean and bright. For the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. So, I believe here, according to what it says, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints, that it's not referring to our salvation, but our righteous acts. This is the reward we receive at the Beamer seat. Yes, we are only saved by grace and will be wearing the garments of salvation, which represent his righteousness. We won't be there if we're not wearing them. But this other garment that they're talking about, I believe, is separate. I'm not sure what it's going to look like. I'm not sure how it's going to work, but it says in verse 8, And to her it was granted to be arrayed in fine linen, clean and bright. So it sounds like it's in the present tense. It sounds like it's something happens then, not something that's already happened at the time of salvation. So the dowry. This is what I will present to Jesus, the results or fruit of my life. To the extent that I prioritize my relationship with God and seek him in his word, his love letter to me, to the same extent I will grow to love him. And greater love results in greater obedience, which results in deeper abiding or agreement, which results in bearing more fruit to the glory of God. Now I've got a quote from a book from Joe Amaral. It's called Understanding Jesus' Cultural Insights into the Words and Deeds of Christ. And this is a section that talks about gifts for the bride. So he says, After the acceptance of the contract, the bridegroom would leave the woman with gifts. They were, first of all, 
a demonstration of his joy for her acceptance and, second, a sign of his affection for her. The gifts were also to serve as a reminder. He was about to go away for a long time, and so the gifts were a reminder to her of him. Every time she would use one of the gifts that he had left for her, it would remind her of him and bring a smile to her face. So the purpose of these gifts was to keep the bride focused on her groom in his absence. Jesus also gave gifts to his bride, to us. Paul writes in Ephesians 4, 7-8, But to each one of us grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. This is why it says, When he ascended on high, he led captives in his train and gave gifts to men. Several of these gifts are listed in 1 Corinthians 12. It is extremely important for us to remember the purpose of the gifts. Jesus left us the gifts for one very specific reason, to remind us of him. Every time you exercise one of the gifts that you have been given, it should bring all the attention and the glory to Christ. End of quote. So we can also add in talents, resources and time into what he's talked about there. All those are things that God has given us. So the parable of the talents, guess where it comes in? In the scriptures, it comes in right before the sheep and the goat judgment. Okay, So chronologically, in Jesus talking about end times events, it's right there. This happens while the church is in heaven, and then the sheep and goat judgment happens after we come back. So I'm just going to look at the first part of the parable. So it's Matthew 25, 14 to 23. It says, For the kingdom of heaven is like a man traveling to a far country, who called his own servants and delivered his goods to them. And to one he gave five talents, to another two, and to another one, to each according to his own ability. That's important. We're all different. We have different capacities for service. And immediately he went on a journey. Then he who had received the five talents went and traded with them and made another five talents. And likewise, he who had received two gained two more also. But he who had received one went and dug in the ground and hid his Lord's money. After a long time, the Lord of those servants came and settled accounts with them. Now this a long time could represent the rapture and settled accounts is probably a good way of describing the beam of seat judgment. So he who had received five talents came and brought out five other talents, saying, Lord, you delivered to me five talents. Look, I have gained five more talents beside them. His Lord said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You were faithful over a few things. I will make you ruler over many things. Enter into the joy of your Lord. Verse 22. He also who had received two talents came and said, Lord, you delivered to me two talents. Look, I have gained two more talents beside them. His Lord said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a few things. I will make you ruler over many things. Enter into the joy of your Lord. So the rest of the parable goes on to describe the unsaved person who refused to use any of the gifts, talents, time and resources for God's kingdom. They're cast into outer darkness where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. So, what can we learn from this parable? First, God gives us different abilities. Some people are five-talent people. Some people are two-talent people. But guess what? Where there's greater capacity to serve, where there's greater ability given, it also means greater responsibility. God gives us these gifts and talents and expects us to use them in his absence because it says, and immediately he went on a journey. So, bottom line is, what matters is our faithfulness to use whatever God has chosen to give us, whether it be five talents, two talents, one talent, we should all be wanting to hear the words, well done, good and faithful servant. You were faithful over a few things. I will make you ruler over many things. So, Guess what kind of words we're going to hear at the beam of seat judgment? Something like this. Enter into the joy of your Lord. 
Now, I just noticed as I was reading this that the same speech, the exact same welcome speech was given to both the two-talent servant and the five-talent servant. So just because someone has given more responsibility down here doesn't mean they're going to get more responsibility in heaven compared to someone who was just as faithful but with a lesser job. So it's just God's sovereignty. He can do whatever he wants with whoever he wants. He puts us into his church to work together so the body can work together. Now, it says, After a long time, the Lord of those servants came and settled accounts with them. So, after a long time, Jesus will return, the rapture, and settle accounts with us. It's the beam of seat judgment. We are rewarded for what was done for Christ, motivated by love for him. So, the more faithful we are now, the more we choose to love him now, and prioritize our relationship with Christ, then the greater our visible eternal reward, our capacity to serve in the kingdom of God, and therefore our capacity to enjoy heaven for eternity. So we look forward to hearing, well done, good and faithful servant, you are faithful over a few things, I will make you ruler over many things, enter into the joy of your Lord. So think about that. Absolutely, wasting our lives on temporary pursuits will have eternal consequences. The Bible promises, I can guarantee you, that none of the temporary things that we crave down here will be important to us when we get to heaven. And not only that, they won't exist. The Bible says in 1 John that these things, these desires, these cravings that we have are passing away. It's not just the desires that are passing away, it's the things we're, we're craving for. Once this world system, this cosmos, this evil world system, is destroyed by God, it's gone. Those things that we were craving are gone. So we need to focus on loving Jesus. We need to focus on gaining things that are eternal. We don't want to smell like smoke at the beam of seat judgment. <laughs> Instead, we want to be richly apparelled in our wedding garment that we are granted to wear for all eternity. A couple more verses to finish off. Colossians 3, 1-5, it's an exaltation by Paul. It says, Since you have been raised to new life with Christ, Set your sights on the realities of heaven where Christ sits in the place of honor at God's right hand. So what is our sight set on? Heaven. And what about heaven? Well, it's where Christ sits. We're looking at Christ. Think about the things of heaven, not the things of earth, for you died to this life. And your real life, I like that, your real life, which means that this is a fake life yeah living for the world is fake it's temporary yeah the real things are solid permanent it's like the shadow and the reality you know the old testament all those types and shadows and christ is the reality he's a real thing your real life is hidden with christ in god and when christ who is your life is revealed to the whole world you will share in all his glory so christ is going to share his glory with us so put to death the sinful earthly things lurking within you. Have nothing to do with sexual immorality, impurity, lust, and evil desires. Don't be greedy, for a greedy person is an idolater, worshipping the things of this world. Now, as we've been going through the book of Revelation, we keep coming across this word, which is translated, those who dwell on the earth. And if you remember, it refers to those who have made this evil world system, this cosmos, their home is where they choose to find their contentment and satisfaction, <laughs> albeit for a very short time. However, as Christians, we need to take Paul's exhortation to us in Colossians 3.1 seriously. This is a command. Since or because we have been raised to new life with Christ, right? Raised to new life. Where do we dwell now? In Ephesians, it says we dwell in the heavenlies now, right? We've been raised to new life. Therefore, we must make the conscious decision to set your sights on the realities of heaven, where Christ sits in the place of honor at God's right hand. So that's the choice we need to make. Okay? We need to consciously set our sights on the realities of heaven, where Christ sits in the place of honor 
at God's right hand. So the responsibility as to where I set my sights, where my focus is, is mine, and it will have eternal consequences. So remember, my motive for setting my sights on heaven is not for the reward, but rather because Christ is there, sitting at the right hand of the Father. Now why is he sitting? The work is done. What does it mean to be at the right hand? It means he's victorious over sin and death. Satan's power over me is done. And I just want to read Romans 8, 12 and 13. Therefore, dear brothers and sisters, you have no obligation, that means you don't have to, it's a voluntary choice, to do what your sinful nature urges you to do. So I can rephrase that. Therefore, brothers and sisters, you don't have to do what your sinful nature urges you to do. <laughs> For if you live by its dictates, you will die. But if through the power of the Spirit you put to death the deeds of your sinful nature, you will live. Notice the if. We have the power of the Spirit. Sometimes we choose not to use it. We only sin because we want to. That's what it comes down to. There is no sin or temptation that God gives us that is beyond our ability to resist or to bear. But we just choose not to. We sin because we want to. That's why we need to set our sights on heaven, where Christ is. Remember where we are. We have been raised to new life. So when we take communion, we look both backwards and forwards. Christ says, do this in remembrance of me until I come. So we're looking at the first coming and the second coming. The first coming is Jesus as a suffering servant, where the victory is won on the cross, and the second coming is Christ returning as a conquering king, and that's what we're going to get into next week. How that all works out when he does physically come back from heaven to earth. But for now, one last verse, Hebrews nine twenty six to 28. It says, But now, once for all time, he has appeared at the end of the age to remove sin by his own death, as a sacrifice. That's what the communion is all about. It's his death, his, his blood. It has removed our sin. And just as each person is destined to die once and after that comes judgment, so Christ was offered once for all time as a sacrifice to take away the sins of many people. He will come again, not to deal with our sins, but to bring salvation to all who are eagerly waiting for him. So, that's Hebrews 9, 26-28. Going and explains the first coming and the second coming. So, as we receive the bread and wine, we'll just hold them, and I'm going to read you a poem by C.T. Studd. It's called Only One Life. And it's a fantastic summary of all that we've been studying over the last two weeks. You know, I probably could have just read the poem and not preached for two weeks. So it's really good. Okay. Two little lines I heard one day Travelling along life's busy way Bringing conviction to my heart And from my mind would not depart Only one life which will soon be passed Only what's done for Christ will last only one life, yes, only one. Soon will its fleeting hours be done. Then, in that day, my Lord to meet and stand before his judgment seat. Only one life, which will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Only one life, the still small voice, gently pleads for a better choice, bidding me selfish aims to leave and to God's holy will to cleave. Only one life, which will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Only one life, a few brief years, each with its burdens, hopes and fears. Each with its days I must fulfill, living for self or in his will. Only one life, which will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. When this bright world would tempt me sore, when Satan would a victory score, when self 
would seek to have its way. Then help me, Lord, with joy to say, Only one life, which will soon be past, Only what's done for Christ will last. Give me, Father, a purpose deep, In joy or sorrow, thy word to keep. Faithful and true, whatever the strife, Pleasing thee in my daily life. Only one life, which will soon be past, Only what's done for Christ will last. Oh, let my love with fervour burn, and from the world now let me turn, living for thee and thee alone, bringing thee pleasure on thy throne. Only one life which will soon be past, only what's done for Christ will last. Only one life, yes, only one, now let me say, thy will be done. And when at last I'll hear the call, I know I'll say, "'Twas worth it all. Only one life, which will soon be past. Only what's done for Christ will last. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for your blood that was shed for us on the cross, bringing remission or forgiveness for our sins, and your body, which was broken in our place. So, Lord, as we eat and drink together, Lord, help us just to remember the great cost of our salvation given freely to us. Yes, it's free, but it costs your very life. So help us appreciate this and Lord, help us to make the choice to always seek to please you and to prepare our hearts to seek you, Lord. Not just to know what we need to do, but to be active in doing it, Lord. To be determined, to make plans, to to make sure that we succeed, to not just let things happen, but, Lord, to make things happen. Lord, to prioritize you and to be active in our faith, working things out. The Bible says, work out your salvation in fear and trembling. Help us to work out our salvation so we can live a life that pleases you. It's not just going to happen. We need to be actively involved in it, Lord. We need to be willing to put the time and effort into our relationship with you. Thank you, Father, in Jesus' name. So don't forget, guys, we're getting married. The celebration's coming. Just keep that in your mind. I'm getting married soon. I'm getting married soon. To my forever groom. <laughs>